Hitchin and Harpenden is a constituency which has consistently returned a Conservative MP since it was created in 1997. The constituency has, since 2010, covered an area from the north of the market town of Hitchin in the north to the borders of St Albans in the south and including Wheathampstead, Sandridge and Offley. In total, there are roughly 76,000 electors in the constituency and turnout has been between 66 and 78% in general elections, a generally high turnout by comparison with that nationally. In the 2016 referendum on the European Union, 60% of those voting expressed a wish to remain. The constituency has an average house price of £495,000 and lower than average unemployment at around 1.5%. The median income is 32% higher than in the UK as a whole and 5,800 businesses are located in the constituency. The Conservative majority at the last election was 12,000, down from 20,000 in 2015, with the Labour Party in second place. Joining us now is Sam Collins, the Liberal Democrats candidate for Hitchin and Harpenden. Born in south-east London, but having lived in St Ippolitz, a small village just south of Hitchin for the last 13 years, Sam has strong family connections to the area. He joined the Lib Dems in 2016, following the EU referendum result. And in 2018, Sam was elected as district councillor for the Hitchin Highbury Ward. Sam's professional background is as an engineer, technical consultant and writer. And when he has any spare time, he likes to walk in the local countryside, visit antique shops and markets and indulge his interest in old cars, planes and trains. Sam Collins, welcome. Oh, thanks so much. So, Sam, tell us a little bit about your connection to the area. Well, I mean, I live here, which is a is usually a good start for somebody who wants to stand in, in the area. Um, my family, I was, I was doing, you know, the Ancestry.com websites and mm. things like that. I did, I did my family tree in a fit of boredom a few years ago and realised I could trace it. I, I traced it back in this this immediate area, sort of the North Hearts and Mid-Beds region, going back for about 600 years and then got a bit stuck because I had to go to a church and look at some dusty old books and I sort of lost the energy at that point. <laughs> it's quite a varied constituency, isn't it? It absolutely is. It, it, it's a lovely place. I mean, I spend a lot of time driving from end to end of it. And um, you go from Hitchin, which is this sort of brilliant market town with so much on. I mean, I love living just outside Hitchin and spending time there. And you go to Harpenden, which in, it itself has got quite a different feel to it, but it's still a brilliant town. And in between, you've got these beautiful villages, these lovely fields and rolling hills. I mean, to be honest, I... I, I actually say this to Daisy Cooper in St Albans sometimes. I, I, I say you should be jealous of my constituency. It's much nicer than yours. I have to say I love living where I do. It's a brilliant place to be. Now, it's not all roses, though, are, is it? So what are the local key issues that you'd want to address if you became an MP locally? Well, there's two fundamental things for me locally. I think one of the reasons I got involved in politics at local level and now a national level is that I think we don't really have good enough representation for the people in our area and we haven't had for the last two MPs and, and I think in local council level in some situations it's, it's similar to that and we saw a really good example of that with the Thameslink problems uh, in 2018 which is still ongoing if you live in Harpenden you know you, you don't have an adequate train service Hitchin struggling as well and I just didn't think there was enough being done for those commuters so I got stuck in and tried to help as much as I can and I'm still still working on that. And I think that really showed up a lack of proper local representation in some in some situations. And also, I mean, on a national level, you have Brexit, where you have MPs who are voting in favour of a really hard, damaging Brexit. And the local population really don't want that. It's a Remain constituency, and that's not being represented at, in Parliament. And I just feel that essentially people are being taken for granted by the politicians. And I think that needs to change. And I'd hopefully want to change that. OK, let's stay locally for a minute. We'll come on to Brexit in a moment. But um, health. So many of your constituents might find themselves on an A&E uh, at Lister Hospital, for example, requires improvement. QE2 is inadequate in Wellin. Uh, Luton and Dunstable, if they're lucky enough to go there, gets a good rating. What do you think about health? Uh, it's, it's a massive issue right across the country. It's not just a local issue. I mean, there isn't enough money going into the NHS. And that's something we've been working really hard on as the Liberal Democrats, you know, sticking with our evidence-based policy-making approach. So we talk to the experts and get them to tell us what needs to be done. 
So we've been talking to the healthcare professionals, we've been talking to the suppliers, we've looked at what needs to be done. And the first thing we need, we know there needs to be a lot of funding going, going into the NHS. So what we're going to do is going to put a penny on the pound on income tax, which will raise about £6 billion per year. And that is just a sticking plaster to solve some of these immediate problems, funding problems we need to do. We also need to merge health and social care because adult social care is, is it's a bit of a drain on the NHS at the moment and it's just a little bit inefficient. So if you've been in those situations, you, you hear about this sort of bed blocking and, and that's not good for anybody. So there's all of these things that need to be resolved. So these little simple things that can be done. And then we just need to put more investment in and put it in in the right way. And, you know, there's a big recruitment shortage. You know, there's a big recruitment problem in the NHS. There's not enough nurses. I think there's something like 40,000 vacancies across the NHS in England. And when you think we've got, you know, again, it's, I have to bring it up, Brexit is, is, one, is a big problem because we are losing, particularly nurses, to, you know, to Europe because we, the, we were recruiting heavily in the European Union and now they don't want to come. And that's causing, making things even worse in the NHS. So one of the things we're going to be doing is going to be staying, obviously staying in the European Union and recruiting heavily from the EU to, to fill those gaps because there are some big gaps in the, in, in the NHS. And on top of that, we need to bring back bursaries for the specialist areas where those nursing shortages are. are, are. It's geographic and subject-led. You know, led. You've got specialist nurses and we have a big, big holes in that situation there. And on top of that, you've got mental health, which is really the sort of the poor cousin when it comes to the NHS. And actually, we need to raise NHS, uh, NHS funding for mental health. We need to increase the training. We need to work in schools and with the police. And, uh, you know, you need parity of mental health treatment to physical health treatment because actually a quarter, quarter of the population have a mental health problem at some point in their life. And that's really not being addressed. Three million people are currently being talked to about some sort of... with the, with the mental health professionals. So it's really, really difficult to carry on the way things are. So, yeah, yeah, there's huge okay. problems. OK, you've talked about a penny on tax being a sticking plaster, so that's not it, is it? It's not going to fund all of that. No, it's not. So how are you going to raise tax more? Is that a penny on tax for everybody, that the lowest for, paid, the highest paid? Absolutely, everybody pays income tax, penny on the pound. It's absolutely blanket and it'll be to fund the NHS. There are some more taxation changes coming, which will I can't give you the full details yet because it's in the manifesto and you'll see when we've got this fully co costed manifesto how we're going to pay for things so one of the things we're really proud of and why our manifesto is a little bit later than the others and a little bit quieter than the others is we spend a lot of time with the IFS sort of working out all of the bugs so it's a fully costed manifesto and everybody's going to be able to go and look at the sums and the maths and work out exactly where we're increasing taxes why we're changing things and how we're going to fund things but it's going to need a lot more tax isn't it you're talking about 60 million trees 300,000 new homes a year 80% renewables by 2030, that's going to require substantial amounts of tax. Is the general, I understand it's all in the manifesto, but is the general direction, let's tax the rich and pay for services? No, it's not quite as simple as that. Now, yeah, there is an element of that. We are going to do a bit more taxation of the highest earners, but essentially that is some, they, they can afford it. It's not going to be a huge increase and it's going to be very specific, detailed increases like that penny on the pound for income tax for the NHS. But there's going to be lots of very detailed uh, tax changes that you'll be able to see in, in the manifesto. Mansion tax still there? No, I don't believe it is. I haven't, as I say, I haven't seen the full manifesto yet, but I don't believe it is there. So um, we will have that again. Those details, I can't give you the exclusive on them because I haven't got the full details yet. I was talking to Ed Davey last night and he hasn't given it out yet. But um, okay. one of the things that is really important to point out is there's a £50 billion remain bonus. So by not leaving the European Union, the country essentially over the next five years, will save £50 billion. Pounds. So that is a remain bonus. Well, somebody has to be wrong about this, don't they? Because there's the oft-quoted £350 million pounds a week that's coming back. So who's wrong? Well, the £350 million pounds per week, I think that's pretty obvious. It's been, it's been so discredited, it's beyond belief. Yeah. And where does this, this bonus from not leaving come from? Well, if you think we've been spending, I think it's a billion pounds per week, on Brexit, or maybe billion pounds per month, I forget the it was on the it was on the news this morning, and I wasn't listening properly. I have to have to admit that. But there is a, we've spent a vast sum of money on Brexit. Just well, we're going around. to stop doing that when we've left anyway, aren't we? So that bonus is there one way or the other. Well, exactly. So and that's on top of this thirty nine or thirty three billion, I think it is divorce fee, as people call it. So on top of that, you have this fifty billion remain bonus, and that's because the economy is going to slump after any sort of Brexit. 
Now, you've, you've brought the subject around to Brexit a number of times, so let's address it. Um, you're not representing the majority of the people in this country, are you? No, but I am representing the majority of people in the constituency. Which yes, is but the your first party is not, is it? I mean, you're standing on a platform which is contrary to the views of the majority of people in the UK. How are you going to get elected as a government? Well, how do you know it's contrary to the population of the UK? Well, we know it was contrary to the referendum result. In 2016? Yes. It's 2019. It's a different electorate different people. We don't know what the will of the country is and a lot more information has come out since. So actually the fair and ethical thing to do is have a people's vote. Let's see what the people, let's see the opinion of the country is. Unless of course everybody decides to stop Brexit, vote Liberal Democrat and then we'll just stop Brexit like we promised to. How often should we have referenda? As rarely as possible, in my opinion. I don't then, think it's a then, very good way to do government. For, you're arguing for another one now. Because it's the fair, fair and equitable thing to do. Because we got into this mess because of a referendum which wasn't legally binding and it was conducted with a bit of dodginess going on. And actually, had it been legally binding, the result would have been overturned. I think it was the High Court, Supreme Court, already declared that. Um, so I think it's, it's really important to look at the situation now. So you can't just, I think, unilaterally revoke Brexit, revoke Article 50, because that would be the wrong thing to do without the people having had a say. Even the, you know, opinion polls, opinion polls, right? But even even the the ones that give the greatest sucker to Remainers don't exactly show an overwhelming majority for staying. Why would we, why should we be so keen on the European Union? We're obviously not. Well, the polls have been consistently in favour of Remain for Marginally. Well, yeah, it's 50 50 plus percent consistently. Plus a little bit. But but my point is, why aren't we overwhelmingly in favour of of the European Union? Do you recognise that there is a significant concern in this country about the European Union being subject to their laws and immigration? Yeah, I think there is a concern. Now, immigration is a wider concern, and I don't think actually the immigration concern is anything to do with the European Union particularly. People That's been sort of built up by some populist politicians in a really sort of rather, well, frankly, racist way. And um, But what you have to remember is you've had a decades-long leave campaign, you know, all this nonsense about bendy bananas taking control of our borders, when we actually do have quite a lot of control of our borders. And Well, we can't control migration from the EU, can we? Well, you, you were, there are laws that we weren't using. So, you know, there's, there's, you, hear, you hear this nonsense from, you know, hardcore leavers that someone can come here, sit, you know, from wherever in the EU and just sit down, claim benefits and get all of that. They can't. And also that we do have the ability after, I think it's two years, if they haven't found gainful employment, they can send them back. But we didn't do that. OK, so um, if, let's suppose for a moment, that the Liberal Democrats are elected as the government... Tell us exactly what you're going to do around this whole issue then. Well, we're going to remain in the European Union. That's pretty simple. <laughs> and reform of the European Union? Yeah, absolutely. So if you, if you look at the European Parliament, our party in the European Parliament isn't actually called the Liberal Democrats. It's called Renew Europe. And that tells you, I mean, it's a mission statement as well as a party name, because obviously there are issues with the EU. I mean, we're definitely better inside, but it does need reform. It does need a bit more accountability in places. So I do think we can change it for the better. And I think that's really important to do as a pan-European project. The European Union is absolutely fantastic for what it does. It's achieved peace over the last 50, 60 years. It's done a huge amount of great work on the environment, fantastic funding for projects across the 28 states, particularly in the UK. There's an awful lot of positive things that have come out of it. So, yeah, we really need to stay in it, but we do need to change it. But it's, you can't change it from the outside, can you? You have to change it for the inside, and we can make it such a positive force. And actually, one of the thing that, things that we need to change straight away is the EU needs to do a much better marketing job because people aren't really clear enough in the UK what the benefits of the EU are. And it's only since this Brexit situation has come along, people have become more and more aware of the positive elements of the EU, which are, which are manifold. Is the Lib Dem government actually very likely? Right now you're sitting on about 16% in the polls. You need to get sort of 25 to 30% because of the nature of our electoral system in order to even accumulate significant numbers of seats. So, so is it actually at all likely that you are going to form the next government? So you're going from 21 seats to 320-ish, depending on the Irish results. It's a long shot, but it's not impossible, and it's what we've got to go for, And because there is a big shift in the country. I mean, I think you may remember that uh, petition about the Revoke Article 50 petition that came out, and it was the most signed petition in the history of Britain. Over six million people signed it. I think it's still open, and people are still signing it, actually, so I'm not sure what the number got up to. So, yeah, it's, it's possible, 
that we could have a Lib Dem majority government. We could see a situation like 1906, where you had this big liberal surge late in the election campaign, and you had a liberal majority government, and it did a huge amount of good for the country. But wouldn't a liberal uh, government formed of, let's say, 320 uh, MPs, 300 of whom would be new, actually be a bit of a management disaster? 300 of them would have never experienced sitting in Parliament or being an MP before. Yeah, it'd be a challenge. That's for absolutely certain. But I think you're going to see, I mean, 100 and something MPs have stood down at this election before. There's, whatever happens, there's going to be an awful lot of new MPs regardless. And yeah, there's going to be learning to do. I mean, for me myself, I mean, I'm going to have to learn the procedures of the House. You've got this Erskine May you have to trawl through and all of these details. So yeah, it's going to be difficult. But that doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. Just because something's difficult doesn't mean don't do it. And what if that doesn't happen, but you do hold the balance of power? What's your position going to be then? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm being asked that a lot on the doorstep. Um, it depends on the parliamentary arithmetic. You know, how many Lib Dem MPs are there? How many Conservative MPs? How many Labour MPs? Who's leading those parties? How many Greens, SMPs? It's going to be a little bit of a... We're going to have to wait and see. Um, because a Jeremy Corbyn, Brexiteer, Labour government and a... Boris Johnson, Brexiteer, Conservative government or leaderships of those parties, that's completely untenable. That's completely unacceptable to us as the Liberal Democrats. So we cannot work with either of those two in that current configuration. So you just aim to be obstructive then? Not obstructive, no. Um, that's never what we are. Uh, we want to be progressive. We want to... But you can't be progressive if you're not going to work with someone, can you, if you don't hold the majority? Well, it, well, you have to be able to work with people, but it depends on, very much depends on the lead, as I say, the leaderships of those parties, because it could be that those leaderships will change very quickly after the election, and that opens up a whole world of new possibilities. What those possibilities are, I just don't know, because it's very much a hypothetical. All right, Sam, tell us why you and the Liberal Democrats are the best choice for the people of Hitchin and Harpenden. Representation. I mean, that's how I started this, this discussion with, and I feel that if you elect me as the next MP for Hitchin and Harpenden, you'll have somebody who cares about the community, I live in the community. I continue to live in the community. I will commute into work every day with the rest of you. So you'll get those train problems addressed or I'll be suffering with the rest of you, not somewhere distant. You'll get someone who listens and cares. That's the big difference. You know, you don't have some distant MP who's sometimes around and doesn't reply to you. I always reply personally to everybody. You have some, you know, it, It's all about that involvement, that localism. And on top of that, it's just, if you look at our policy, our policy is so much more aligned with what the people in our area want. I mean, if you just ask them on the doorstep, this is what this is what the Liberal Democrats will deliver. We'll deliver effective government. We'll deliver localism. We will give, hopefully get a fairer voting system so you don't have this tactical voting nonsense going on, which is essential in this election, but we need a fairer voting system so you have better representation. And that's the real thing. We have to represent the people of our area. And, you know, stopping Brexit is top of people's agenda, and that's what we're all about. And then we just want to get on and build this brighter future for the whole country. Sam Collins, Liberal Democrat candidate for Hitchin and Harpenden constituency, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Bim Afalami was first elected as the Member of Parliament for Hitchin and Harpenden in 2017. He lives in a village near Harpenden with his wife Hetty and their three sons. Before entering Parliament, he had a career in the city, first as a lawyer and then as a senior executive. Bim Afalami, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Now, um, tell us a little bit about you and your connection to the area. Well, uh, my... My main sort of connection to the area and being so proud to be MP for this area is, you know, really through my parents. I mean, my dad's a, a doctor in West Hertfordshire Trust. So that's, for those who don't know, St. Albans, Hemel and Watford. So I really grew up really in the NHS around this area. And when I, when I say grew up in the NHS, I really mean that. Uh, often when my parents didn't um, have anybody to look after us, <laughs> we'd end up being taken to hospital, uh, whether it be not because we were ill, but just because there was no one to look after us. So uh, I, I spent a lot of time in St. Albans, Hemel uh, and Watford hospitals and, and as a child all the way through till the present day. And it's been such a joy to be the MB for, for Harpenden and Hitchin and all the surrounding villages. Great. Now, now, what have you done for your constituents over the last 12 months? Gosh, <laughs> what have I done for them? You don't have to list it all, obviously. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Have you, have you got... Have you got uh, no. Um, my main focus over the last 12 months has really been, been threefold. The first is being a moderate, sensible, compromise voice on Brexit. 
I uh, was elected on a manifesto in 2017 to, to deliver on the result of the referendum, um, but do so in a smooth and orderly way. And I've done that. And I've worked cross-party with Labour MPs like Stephen Kinnock, for example, trying to, to do that. And I think that that's what my constituents want me to do. And that's one thing I've done. Do they? Uh, do they? Because in the referendum, they voted pretty heavily to remain. Uh, but my point being that I was elected very clearly on a manifesto to deliver on the result of the referendum um, with well over 50% of the vote. And I, and I have sought to implement that. But more locally... My main focuses have been working on increasing school funding and keeping our schools in Harpenden, Wheatonstead, Redbourne uh, as good as possible. I, my first maiden speech, my maiden speech in Parliament was about increasing school funding. Uh, and we have now got that increase in my constituency uh, if we're the Conservatives are returned again at the general election. The average increase in school funding will be about 4.6% with more similar increases year two and year three. So that is something that I've been working on very, very much. And then the third thing I'd like to say, uh, and this is a slightly odd one, is really working to save sort of community assets and local pubs. There's a a, uh, a pub called the Windmill Pub in the village of Charlton, which is a bit further north from, from Harpenden, sort of in the villages in between Hitchin and Harpenden. And the Charlton lots of people in the community want to save it. And I've been working with them to try and do so. And I hope next year we can get to that point. And talking of, of pubs and businesses generally, it's business rates, isn't it, that, that seems to be the issue. And isn't part of the issue actually a national policy that, that was implemented that seems to have gone a bit wrong? I don't think the policy's gone wrong. The policy is working in the way it was designed. I just don't think it's a very good system. So, uh the, the, the truth is, is that we need a wholesale review of business rates. The difficulty, to be frank, is that business rates have raised, they're one of the longest standing taxes we have, and they've raised, it raises so much for the Exchequer that it, it, it's been difficult to find an alternative. But within the constraints of the existing business rate system, we have cut the business rate for small retailers by a third um, over the last two years. That is a that's a significant difference. And when I go down Harperton High Street, which faces challenges, a bit like Hitchens Town Centre, a bit like many high streets and town centres across the country, Harperton High Street, the small retailers tell me, look, things are hard and we need things to be improved. But that cut in a third for business rates really made a difference. Talking of the National Health Service, you've mentioned about your first-hand experience of it. What do you think about the National Health Service here and in the country in general? It's... It's very good at times. It's less good at others. Uh, like any national system, the difficulty is you. there are areas of absolute brilliance and excellence, but then there are obviously areas where things fall back. Very locally, uh, Watford General, um, St. Albans and Hemel is having an investment of £400 million uh, that's been um, delivered by this government, and that will come in if we're re-elected. I think that that's important. Now, it personally, I'd have loved to have seen a brand new hospital built. But ultimately, that is, you know, we, £400 million is not insignificant. It will result in certain um, rebuilding of the site at Watford and also money will go into Hemel and St Albans. I think that that's important. I think the Luton and Dunstable Hospital, not very far away. Yes, Luton, and a lot of your constituents will yes, end a lot up going of my there on A, &E, a lot of my constituents right? use, use Luton and Dunstable or indeed the Lister Hospital in Stevenage. But um, in relation to the Luton and Dunstable Hospital, it's been given an investment of almost just under £100 million to upgrade it. That's capital investment really needed. And I'm also involved with raising money for the helipad, a uh, new helipad that we're trying to get done at Luton and Dunstable as well. Now, there isn't enough money, as you've said, to build a new hospital, but, but your party is uh, pledging to put a lot more money into things like the National Health Service. Where's that money going to come from? Well, it comes from sensible management of the economy. And when I speak to... So well, has, has there not been sensible management of the economy up till now? So we're going to get more money because you're going to manage it sensibly now? No. When you manage economy <laughs> sensibly over a period of time, you can accumulate reserves. You can accumulate savings. It's like any family household. What we've done over the last few years is we've been very sensible. In some, We've been very fiscally prudent. For some people, we've been too prudent fiscally. And I, I accept that criticism. But now, having done that hard work, having made those hard yards, that's when we've now got 
a bit of a bit of freedom, a bit of cash to spare. That money should be split, in my judgment, by between public services and trying to lower taxes on working people and on businesses. And there's obviously a, a debate about the the uh, proportions in which you do that. But that's what I think we're we're going to do. Well, your your current uh, or ex chancellor um, has said that you're going to borrow more. When did you discover that borrowing was a good idea? Because it's been a bad idea for quite a long time, hasn't it? Well, borrowing is necessary for any government. But what we've done is through our sensible management of the economy, the people who we borrow from, i.e. the international bond market, that's people from all over the world who want to buy British government debt, have reduced the interest that we have to pay on that debt. And the reason why they've reduced it is they know a sensible government is in charge. Those bond rates have been low for a very long time, no, but no. You've, you've constantly argued that you need to have austerity and not borrow money. But now there's an election on the way. You're going to borrow money. Sajid Javid said an extra £100 billion of public spending funded in part by borrowing. He even commented that you could probably double that. It seems right. like all that fiscal responsibility has just gone out the window. Right. So you, let me finish my point. Because of the sensible management of the economy, the interest rate over time has gone down. You say it's been low for a very long time. It's lower now than it has been at any point since 2010, right? So, so that makes a difference. And by the way, very small differences when you're talking about hundreds of billions make a significant difference on a month by month basis. But in addition to that, our, what we've managed to do is we've managed to also grow the economy. So the key metric that many investors, indeed most international investors look at is your debt as a percentage of your total GDP, okay? Our debt now as a percentage of our total GDP is falling and will continue to fall. When we came in in 2010, it was going completely in the wrong direction. And so that is how we're, we're able to borrow sensibly, we're able to spend money on public services and on re um, reducing taxes for working people and for businesses. That is the result of a sensibly managed economy. And by contrast, if you have Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, every single person listening to this knows the sort of chaos that will come if they get on get get in charge of the public finances. Well, they don't know that, do they? And and actually, you're making an argument for any government borrowing money, actually, aren't you? Because you're saying, well, bond rates are low, we can borrow money cheaply, and then we can invest in our services and grow the economy. That's exactly the argument that Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell are making too. Um, no, I was I was making a more nuanced argument. It's two part. The first part is because we have proven ourselves as a party and as a government in terms of how we manage the economy, the bomb rates keep falling. And that those two things need to be, you, know, you need the, the sensible people in charge for that to happen. But secondly, we are still going to keep debt falling as a percentage of GDP. This is not debt rising as a percentage of GDP. Debt will continue to fall overall as a percentage size of our economy. So that is the key metric that will continue to be in place. Let's move on to something else that people, some people say is going to have a negative impact on the economy, and that's Brexit. What's your view on the European Union? What makes you believe your constituents are wrong and that we should, we should leave the Union? It's not about being wrong or right. It's about well, the fact you we are had a, saying You are saying no, that you're, no, the majority said, of your constituents I've are wrong. I've never said my constituents were wrong. I voted Remain myself in 2016. I've never said my constituents were wrong. What I'm saying is political judgment was made in the referendum. Now, I happen to not think referenda are necessarily the best devices to deal with every problem. I happen not to like the Scottish referendum for that matter. However, once you have had a referendum, once you've done that, and I remember very well Paddy Ashdown and Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and David Cameron and everybody at that time saying, this is a once in a generation opportunity. There isn't a second vote. Once you do that, it is up to Parliament and up to politicians to implement the result of that. That is a fundamental part of our democracy. I will not resolve from that. So when when do you think it becomes an MP's duty to vote in favour of things which are nationally favourable against the wishes of your constituents? Is that always? No, I I I don't believe that people's wishes are stuck in aspic. As well, I'm not, a, no, a I'm not suggesting time. that. I'm just saying on a particular issue, there must be issues where perhaps the nation believes in something that you, you have voted against. I'm just wondering when national views override your constituents' views. Well, every single vote you take, there's a mixture of things. You have the party view, you have what you stood on at your manifesto, you have your own personal view, you have what your constituents may think. And also, because 
often it's actually quite hard to know what your constituents think at any given time because you can't do an opinion poll of everybody. That's what elections are called. Also, you often have minorities that have a very strong view about something, though it is a minority view, and you've got to take that into account. I use one issue in particular, assisted dying, which is a very difficult issue. There are some people who feel very, very strongly we need to change the law on that. But I don't think it's necessarily something that a majority of my constituents have a strong view on. In, in, in which case, do you see what, what, what represents your constituents' view? It's very difficult. So the well, job you, of a parliamentarian, on Brexit, the job of a parliamentarian is to look at everything, weigh up everything, make a decision. And then at the election time, you see what people thought of it. What do you say to the 60% of people in your constituency who voted to remain? What, what do you say to them on the doorstep? Why, why is it a very good idea for us to leave, apart from the fact that marginally more people in the nation want to leave than to stay, or at least did want to leave? I'll, I'll tell you what they tell me, which is the majority of them tell me, look, I, I, I think we have to abide by the result of the referendum, even if I didn't necessarily like it, uh, because they believe that that's an important principle of democracy. And in addition, what I also hear from people, and I myself used to work in the city, obviously both as, uh, as a lawyer, then in banking at HSBC. And I know lots of people who do what I used to do still, which is buying and selling businesses, investing hundreds, if not billions of pounds in this country. They say that, look, the country's made the decision. It's been hanging around for three years. We need to move on, end the uncertainty and move forward. And that's why, as we sit here, the, the Conservative Party's leading in the polls significantly. Obviously, we can polls move around and we'll see what happens at the end is because that argument is the one that is weighing with the country at large. And I believe that my constituency is is similar in that sense. You've raised the question of trust of the Labour Party with the economy. Um, trust is quite a key issue in this election, fake news and so on. Should people trust Boris Johnson and believe everything he says? Well, I'm afraid the Prime Minister, people say, oh, you know, he wanted a a no deal. He wants a no deal. And then he got a deal. And all the people who said he wanted a no deal didn't have anything to say. So they sort of faddle around for a bit. And then they convinced themselves that this deal was a no deal. And they kept saying that. I mean, it's just nonsense. No, sorry. I, that wasn't really the question I asked, was it? I, should people trust Boris Johnson and believe everything he says? No. What, what I'm, what is I'm saying no? What I'm saying is that he... No, it's not no. I'm, what I'm illustrating is that there is a lot of, you know, um, in my judgment, unfair criticism of the prime minister when he says he's going to do something, he absolutely tries his hardest in order to achieve that. Sometimes he gets there, sometimes he doesn't. But that's like any of us. He absolutely tries his hardest. And more often than not, he surprises people on the upside by delivering on what he says he's going to do. He said he was going to invest in schools. He's done it. He said he's going to invest in the NHS. He's done it. He said he's going to get a deal on Brexit. He got it. I'm not going to try this question more than once more, but should people trust Boris Johnson and believe everything he says? Well, I've, I've explained to you that he is, when the prime minister... In fact, more so than lots of other politicians that I've come across, when he says, I am going to do X, he absolutely either delivers that or tries his absolute hardest within everything in his power to do so. I don't think you can ask anything more of him, me or anyone else. OK, um, let's move on to uh, an issue. Um, your, your leaders in the past have talked about One Nation Toryism and the just about managing jams. But what have they actually done to address the issues of poverty and inequality? The Trussell Trust just last week saying that food bank use has risen 73% over the last five years. That doesn't seem like a terribly good indicator of success, does it? Well, if you look at inequality, inequality is now, whether it be in income or in wealth terms, lower than it's been for the best part of 20 years. But in relation to food banks, food bank use, in fact, I was talking to a friend of mine who works um, for in, in, in a food bank in South London, uh, in Croydon, uh, last week, in fact, it was, early last week. And I was asking her about food bank use. And in essence, there are, it's a very complex set of circumstances which often drive people to food banks. Sometimes it is purely cash and not having enough money. Sometimes there's mental health issues, there's there's addiction, and there's also the demand, the fact that food banks, or rather the supply of it, the food that it's there, the fact that there are more food banks than there were 10 years ago will mean that, of course, food bank use will also go up. The truth is, people at the bottom 20% of the income spectrum are better off, not just in cash terms, but in real terms now than they were in 2010. We are now putting a, uh, a living wage, the highest that has ever been proposed, much higher than was ever proposed under Labour. And by the way, that's higher, not just in cash terms, but dealing with current inflation as well. 
we are absolutely focusing focusing on the lowest paid. We've taken you know many millions of people out of tax altogether by raising the income tax threshold. That is the focus of the Conservative government, which is to bring up bring up the working and people at the at the lowest incomes. And by all means, there's there's further to go. Of course, you know, of course, there's much more to do. We need to get more higher paying jobs in the economy, middle and higher paying jobs in the economy, so that there are fewer people doing lower paying jobs. Part of that is to make sure that you can get the capital investment into businesses so that you aren't having so many people at the sort of lower end. You can use uh, machines and computers to do that. And that's also something I hope to see in the manifesto. But look, there's a lot of work to do, but we've made a lot of progress. Bim, Bim, just in closing, um, just give us in a short few sentences why you think you are the right choice and your party is the right choice for the constituents of Hitchin and Harpenden. I'll leave it with, with, with three main things. The first is education. Education is what I made my first speech in Parliament about. It's my main passion. And we are investing more in our schools. If we're re-elected, we'll invest more in our schools than has ever been invested before. And that is indication of, of my commitment to that. And that will help our schools um, stay strong. The second is opposing Luton Airport expansion. Luton Airport should not grow any bigger. It is the wrong place to have an airport of a sort of Gatwick-like size, and I am absolutely full-throated in opposing Luton Airport expansion. The third is the environment. I haven't had a chance to talk about it today so far, but the environment is our biggest existential challenge. Uh, I held the first, I think there was no other MP who's done it, a climate change conference in my constituency to talk about how we get to net zero in a way that is productive, that helps the economy, that helps people and brings everybody together. That's the sort of work I'll be doing as uh, if re-elected as Member of Parliament and continue to do. Bim Afalami, Conservative candidate for Hitchin and Harpenden, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Joining us now is Kay Tart. Kay is the Labour candidate for the Harpenden and Hitchin constituency. Kay is a district councillor at North Hearts District Council where she's the deputy portfolio holder for Environment and Leisure. Kay was born and raised in Hitchin and is now raising her own family there. Welcome Kay Tart. Thank you very much Nick. Now, Kate, tell us a bit about your connection to the local area. Well, as you've just said, um, I was born in Hitchin and I've lived there almost all of my life and I'm now raising my family there. My children are at a local school. I've been working in the community and the voluntary sector in Hitchin for a number of years and I was elected to North Hearts District Council in May of this year. Um, I'm very committed to seeing change, positive change in our local communities and that's really what's led me to become involved in politics. What do you think are the issues that matter to people in your constituency? Well, I think that the issues that matter to people in our constituency are, are the same issues that matter to me as a local resident. And from talking to people on the doorstep and as part of my casework as a district councillor, these things tend to be um, looking at housing, ensuring we have affordable, truly affordable housing in our local area so that local people can live where they choose, so that their children are able to stay in their local area. Um, There are issues around transport. Our public transport systems have been decimated and we are lacking in bus routes. Our trains are unreliable. And so this is a major issue we find on the doorstep. Um, Education is another thing that comes up frequently. Um, A lack of funding for our schools, which means we don't have enough resources for teachers to teach our children properly. And we also discuss climate change quite a lot. Um, and, and really, I feel this is the biggest challenge that we have at the moment. And it's becoming more prevalent in, in discussions we have on the doorstep because people are becoming increasingly aware of the things that they need to do to make a difference. Now, all the parties are promising um, to build hundreds of thousands of new homes over varying periods. Where do you think would be the best place in your constituency for tens of thousands of new homes? I think we need to be very careful about where we place homes in our constituency. Um, what we find when talking to residents is that they don't approve of some of the locations that have been set out by council. So I think we need to make sure in our constituency that we build these homes where we have the, the capacity to put in proper infrastructure. Um, there have been areas of Greenbelt released um, and whilst I think this is necessary, we need to be extremely careful to make sure that our green spaces and the buffers between towns are protected. So it's really looking at existing infrastructure, making sure we have the opportunity to develop in, in, um, existing infrastructure to make sure it can support the levels of homes they're building. Um, but it involves proper research and proper development to make sure that it's done properly. 
But you're always going to find people in a particular area not wanting 10,000 new homes on their doorstep, aren't you? How, how are you going to deal with that if you're elected as an MP? I think you're absolutely right. It, wherever development is, there are always people who don't want it in that area. And their concerns are always valid and they must be taken we have to take account of those concerns. Um, I think one of the key things in building large developments is making sure that the community comes along with you. So what I've been doing locally with regards to a large development that's planned is talking to people in the community, giving them the opportunity to air their concerns, making sure that those concerns are picked up and taken note of by developers and trying to work out how we can make things work for them. There's always going to be people who don't want the development to go ahead, but we do have a responsibility to ensure that we have sufficient housing. But what matters is that we do it in a sensitive and um, corruptive way with local residents. So you would support the building of tens of thousands of houses somewhere in your constituency, but you don't know where. Is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is that we haven't identified an area exactly where that's likely to happen. What we do have in the north of the constituency um, in North Hearts is a local plan that is currently being looked at by the inspector. So we're looking at areas where we can build these houses already so they're in place there's one in my ward in Woolsworth that we're looking at but I think we have to take the right time to do things properly I don't think just slapping them in anywhere is the answer. We've taken an awful long time already to try and build enough houses and we've singularly failed haven't we why would a Labour government succeed where others have failed? I think that a Labour government will succeed where others have failed because we have experience of taking on this sort of project what we're talking about is the largest um, building programme of social affordable housing since 1945 um, and it's about putting the investment in. The reason we don't have these houses is that there has been a lack of investment over a decade. There is no money in the budget for social housing and if there's no money local councils can't build the social housing that's required and we can't look at building affordable housing. Now in your constituency the house price is among some of the higher median house prices in, in the country. Should people be frightened that if we suddenly build lots of new houses in their area that house prices are actually going to fall? Um, in, we've had lots of houses built in the north of the constituency and we haven't seen house prices falling. I think as long as we continue to make sure that the infrastructure is in place and that we support our high streets and develop our towns, there isn't an enormous risk of house prices falling. In Hitchin, um, people are being priced out of of the area but because of high rents and extremely high house prices. So what we, what we want to do is to ensure that we have truly affordable houses for local people um, and that... That, but that also means making sure that the towns and the villages are supported. Now, building those houses and indeed zero carbon houses, taking rail into private o public ownership and uh, giving free broadband to everybody are just some of your party's pledges. How are you going to be able to afford the hundreds of billions of pounds you're proposing over a very short time? It's quite simple, actually. Um, we've obviously talked about an increase in tax for the top 5% of earners um, and closing tax, tax loopholes that prevent um, and that allow large corporations not to pay tax in the area in which they conduct business. How are you going to close those loopholes? Because mostly that comes from things like profits being siphoned overseas. How are you going to stop that happening? It's, it's a legitimate accounting, uh, accounting method, isn't it? So how are you going to stop that happening? Um, it involves bringing in legislation that makes this unacceptable and um, illegal in this country. So this is something that I'm really keen to get sorted out because there are billions and billions of pounds of tax that could be being put to very good use in this country if these large corporations paid their way. Now, if businesses start to find that that's punitive, then inevitably they're going to think twice about whether they want to be here. How are you going to reassure them and international investors and av avoid a return to the 1970s crisis of debt inflation and devaluation? I think what's important is that we look forward to working with these companies to make sure that they, they, they meet their responsibilities. Um, what I want to see brought in is um, a system of fair tax um, accreditation so that we can actually celebrate the tax that companies pay and show what it pays for in our in our country so i think what we have to do is to work with these countries to ensure that they understand the important the, sorry these companies <laughs> with the, so that they understand the importance of paying their way here and the benefit to them of public the public understanding that they are responsible businesses um Okay, so um, you are going to tax the top 5% of earners nationally. That means 70,000 per annum or more, doesn't it? No, it means 80,000 per annum 80, or more. 80,000 per annum or more. Yes. And given that the median income in this area is roughly a quarter higher than in the UK as a whole, it's going to affect more than 5% of people here, isn't it? What do you say to them when they say, why should I give my money to the government? Why are they going to spend it wisely? Um, I think the answer to that question is that... <sighs> 
in order to support the most vulnerable in our society and to make a society work, we have to enable everybody to have a certain standard of living. And whilst there are certainly a higher proportion of people on the higher incomes in this country, uh, in this uh, constituency than in the country at large, on £80,000 a year, we're talking about £10 a month. That's all it is. At £80,000 a year. But obviously, if you earn more than that, it's more than £10 a month, right? Yes. Yes, of course. Okay, and this will completely fund the, the the hundreds of billions of pounds that you're proposing. The tax is all that's needed, is it? Or do you need to borrow money as well? We will need to borrow money. Uh, the manifesto, which is coming out on Thursday, will be fully costed, which means that constituents will have the opportunity to scrutinise exactly how we're saying we're going to pay for this. The issue, I think, with borrowing money is that the national debt hasn't gone down under the, the Conservative government. For the last 10 years, we have... Um, we've all suffered at the hands of austerity, only to see the national debt almost double. The Labour, the Labour Party don't have a problem with borrowing money to invest it, because if we invest it in the right places in the economy, the, the return is enormous, both social and monetary. So there's a problem if the Conservatives double debt, but there isn't if you do. Is that what you're saying? My problem with the Conservatives doubling the debt is that they haven't put it back into the country. What they've done is give tax breaks to people who don't need any more money and let the poorest and most vulnerable of, the, of our society shoulder the burden of that. The difference with the Labour government is that that money goes back into the system. It supports our education system, our public services, our healthcare, which in turn gives a better return. It enables people at the lower end to spend money to... to have aspirations and to succeed and that is a far better investment which gives a far better return than tax breaks for the rich. Now the Labour Party's had sort of varying policies it seems from the outside on on Brexit. You seem to have settled on one now which is to hold a second referendum, renegotiate and hold a second referendum. What's your personal view on Brexit? How would you campaign if you were in power and as promised held a second referendum? I voted Remain in the 2016 referendum and I would I would vote Remain again and I would campaign for Remain. I do not believe that we can, even we cannot negotiate a deal that is any better and that affords us the same opportunities and protections that we have within the EU. However, I don't think that it is democratically acceptable to revoke Article 50 without some process of confirmation from the public and I cannot support a no-deal Brexit because it puts our public services on the table for unscrupulous trade deals. So you think it's better to be in the European Union. You, do you think the European Union is perfect? Do you accept people's worries about migration from the European Union and the threat to jobs here? I, of course, these are very, very valid concerns. Um, the European Union is not perfect. It needs reform, but you can't reform something from outside. I, I spend a lot of time on the doorstep talking to people who have concerns about immigration, but the net result of immigration in this country is not negative. It, it boosts our economy. And the jobs that immigrants are taking in our country are not the jobs that people here want so actually this involves what we need to do is to invest in support for people who are looking for jobs and create jobs so that there isn't an issue here i think this is an issue of understanding as opposed to an issue of, of the reality of people from europe taking jobs that british people want now that view doesn't quite align does it with with the flexibility that you want that you've announced uh, just over the weekend that you want to control migration so why would you want to control migration if it's a good thing um Migration generally is a good thing. Um, there's a, a valid concern amongst residents and constituents that um, immigration can put a burden on our, our public services, on our schools. So I, I think a, a certain amount of control isn't an issue. Personally, myself, I'm, I'm, I support free movement. So you're not completely aligned with the Labour Party's policy, which is not quite the same. You want flexibility on free movement, don't you, as a party? Yes, we, I think the thing is, going forward... If we become in, if we're in power, that's we're going to be in power. I think as part of a coalition. So these are things that need. Oh, so you you don't think you can win outright? No, I don't think we can. I think to be completely honest, the likelihood of a Labour majority in this situation is is slim. Um, I think that there will be a hung parliament. I think there'll be a coalition. I would love to say there'll be a Labour majority, but given the volatility and the divide that has been created by Brexit, I think it will take time to rebuild the confidence in politics that is necessary for that sort of thing to happen. Who are you going to be in a coalition with? I mean, the Liberal Democrats have said that, that they won't enter a coalition with anyone. Yes, they have. I think that this is something that will have to be dealt with. Obviously, this is something we're going to have to deal with after the election. Um, whether it's a formal coalition or where, whether it's an agreement of support will depend on who's still holding their seats and who's in Parliament when the election finishes. 
but so there's but in a situation where the Conservative Party say were the the largest single party uh, but didn't have an overall majority you're saying that you think despite the fact the Liberal Democrats have said they won't enter a coalition with you that's actually what will happen yes that's, I, I think that's exactly what will happen Okay, um, let's move on a bit to um, the the question about trust. Can Jeremy Corbyn and his key advisers be trusted um, during the uh, the whole question of Brexit? In fact, during the referendum, there are those who said that Jeremy Corbyn is is secretly a Brexiteer who really put no effort into the Remain campaign at all, um, even though he he pretends that he thinks probably uh, Brexit is a bad idea as currently as currently envisaged. Um, and and also that that the, you in a time of real disarray in the other parties you've fumbled the leadership opportunity you didn't seem to want an election is that really somebody who can lead this country? I believe it is somebody that can lead this country. I wouldn't be standing as a Labour Party candidate on a Labour Party ticket. Um, what would you say to someone who who said those sort of things to you? How can you reassure them that that Jeremy Corbyn and his cabinet and his key advisers actually can be trusted because their views don't seem very clear and they seem to wave about all over the place? I think that the Labour Party has tried very hard to find a position that works for as many people as possible. Unfortunately, this this is viewed by people at... The is that really leadership? Just trying to be work for as many people as possible? That sounds like trying to get elected, doesn't it? If we don't have a leadership who are trying to work for as many people as possible, they're only benefiting the few. So the... Ta- the, 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 the excuse me, I need to... <laughs> I'm very dry mouth. Right. On Brexit... Jeremy Corbyn has made no um, pretense that he isn't a Eurosceptic. He doesn't think that the EU is perfect. He does accept that the best position for us is within the EU. And the vast majority of Labour Party members and the Parliamentary Labour Party are supportive of staying in the European Union. And they hold him to account. We hold him as members of the Labour Party to account. So, yes, I think he can be trusted. And I genuinely believe that the best sort of leadership is that that takes account of everybody's views, not a very few polarised ones on the right or the left. Okay, so Kate, tell us why you and the Labour Party are the right choice for Hitchin and Harpenden. I am the right choice for Hitchin and Harpenden because I am a local resident who genuinely understands the things that matter to local people. I am of the community and so and I've been working in the community for a long time. Uh, the Labour Party, we need a Labour Party, sorry, we need a Labour government as soon as possible. I believe we need proper transformative social change if we are ever to repair the damage that's been done over the last decade. Investment in our public services, investment in our schools, um, proper public transport systems that work for people, not profit, and proper decisive action on climate change that brings people along and isn't... Um, it's, we, have to, we have to encourage people to come with us and that's why we need somebody who's from the community to do the job locally. Um, I'm a I'm committed to community engagement and in su- to supporting the most vulnerable of our society. Um, and I've got experience as a district councillor in casework and in legislation and negotiation. And so I think this makes me ideally suited to represent our constituency in the Houses of, in the houses of Parliament. Kate Hart, Labour candidate for the Hitchin and Harpenden constituency, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also standing in the Hitchin and Harpenden constituency are Sid Cordell, the Christian People's Alliance, and Peter Charles Christopher Marshall advance together.